0: Well, we finished our January series on grace stories, and uh, Pastor Peter will be resuming the Ephesians series in a couple of weeks. And so I get the privilege of a standalone sermon today. And so as I was thinking about, you know, what of all the possible things to preach on, uh, my mind has just been in this whole uh, area of of what it means to be witnesses uh, for Christ because of the, uh, the ACE class that I'm teaching. And so I'm kind of living there with ACE and I thought I would bring uh, that theme out today in, in the sermon. So I've chosen for our text this morning the opening verses from the book of Acts. And uh, January is a time of new beginnings and the book of Acts marks a new beginning as well. It's a significant turning point in the history of God's unfolding plan in the world. Jesus has concluded his earthly ministry. He's been crucified. He's risen from the dead. And Acts begins with this period of time where Jesus uh, is is meeting with his disciples after his resurrection, appearing to them, teaching them before he ascends to the Father. And he gives them his last face-to-face instructions And he commissions them to be his witnesses. But before they could get started, they needed some final correction on a couple of issues concerning the power and the purpose of the kingdom. And I think we need the same instruction. And so listen as I read uh, from Acts 1 verses 1 through 11. This is the word of God. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions to the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days, and he spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the father set by his own authority." This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we don't, we're not left to just uh, think our way, find our way to you, but you have come to us. You've revealed yourself to us. You have disclosed your will, your plan, your, the, the way of your world. You've given us our calling. You've communicated. And ultimately, you've communicated in the sending of your Son. We give you thanks for Jesus. Teach us from your word today. Uh, Lord, as you commissioned your church in this passage, Lord, the commission applies to us. So in, inform us. Lord, challenge us, encourage us. Uh, but Lord, empower us to live out this calling that you've given. Teach us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the first thing that I want us to see in this passage is that the kingdom operates with a different kind of power. A different kind of power. The first three verses tell us that Jesus appeared to his disciples after his resurrection over a period of 40 days. And the focus of this time was to teach them about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is just not one more topic among other topics like prayer and Bible study and Christian parenting or evangelism. The kingdom is what all of those things are about. As God uh, manifests his reign on earth as it is in heaven through his people, by his spirit. If we don't understand the kingdom, we'll miss the forest for the trees. And in the context of teaching them about the kingdom, verse 4 tells us that Jesus told the disciples about the Holy Spirit. The the kingdom and the Holy Spirit are intimately connected. And, And we see here that the Holy Spirit is a gift that's given to us by God, but it's a gift with a purpose. It's a gift given so that we would be witnesses to the fulfillment of God's reign, God's kingdom in Jesus Christ. And and all of this talk of power and of kingdom can lead to a problem. We too easily, I think, focus on power and the presence of the Spirit for our own personal gain. Our own personal gain. Look at verse 6. After Jesus told them about the Spirit, it says that the disciples gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And then Jesus gives them kind of a mild rebuke. Uh, They're they're focusing on the wrong thing. So what's going on here? What is is it that they're they're driving at with this question that they ask Jesus? Well, F.F. Bruce, a well-respected Bible scholar, um, explains the disciples' question, their motivation for this question in verse 6 this way. He says that it appears that this was the last flicker of their former burning expectation of a political theocracy with themselves as its chief executives. What's that mean? Uh, I I think, in other words, they're thinking about their position, the prestige of their role, their place in, in Jesus' kingdom. This wouldn't be the first time. Uh, Throughout Jesus' ministry, his earthly ministry, the disciples multiple times kind of postured. For example, in in Mark 10, when James and John asked Jesus if they could sit in positions of power on his right and on his left when he comes into his kingdom, Jesus responds by teaching them, unlike the rulers of the Gentiles who, who amass power and lord it over the people under them, leaders in God's kingdom must be servants. So power in God's kingdom is is to be given away. It's to be used for the benefit of others. Worldly power is all about securing benefit for me. The power of the kingdom is all about God showing up in my life to work through me to be a blessing to someone else. It's easy to pick on the disciples, but we do the same thing. I do the same thing. Whenever we long to see more of the Spirit's power in our own lives, legitimate in and of itself, but aren't all that concerned about how He can use us to minister to someone else or to bless someone else, we've fallen into that same mindset perhaps any time that we're almost exclusively concerned about what happens inside the four walls of this building rather than understanding that when we gather here we're to be equipped so that we can scatter and graciously winsomely extend the kingdom to those that don't yet know Christ we've fallen into this problem anytime we choose our churches or the ministries we're involved with primarily for what they can do for us rather than thinking how we can contribute it's one among many to the building up of the body so that it's equipped for its calling. In short, anytime we think of the power of the Spirit in purely inward ways, as if it's about me and my desires, we're misunderstanding what the power of the kingdom is ultimately for. In the kingdom, power is to be given away. It's outward focus. It's about extending Christ's kingdom through kingdom words and kingdom deeds. And, and friends, that's not natural. We don't naturally, inherently want to give power away to, to, to focus on others. Our default way of thinking is not to take up our cross, to consider our lives over for the sake of Christ and his gospel, to find our lives by losing them for his sake, but thankfully, the Spirit's power is the remedy, the remedy for our selfish natures. Our only hope is if God gives us the ability to live this way as he, as he works to transform our lives. This is a, a progressive, ongoing thing, but that's what the Spirit is given for, to empower us to be his witnesses for the sake of others. Verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, And because that's true, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Through the Holy Spirit, God gives us the spiritual ability, the spiritual power that we need to overcome those those, uh, sin tendencies within us. This isn't something that we work up. This is something that we do. Jesus says it's who we are, his witnesses It's a noun, not a verb. It's not a command here. He doesn't say go witness. He says you will be. This is who you are. This is your identity, your nature. You are my witnesses. And so we witness because of that. Also notice the Spirit's power orients us outward towards others. It propels us to seek the spiritual well-being of others where we live throughout the region and ultimately to the whole world. We're concerned about everybody. Um, uh, Friends, that's countercultural. We feel like we barely have time for ourselves and our families, let alone for Christian fellowship. It's hard enough. Um, if, If we're not incredibly intentional, we find that there is just simply no margin in our lives. We are not in any position to be a blessing to those that don't share our faith despite the fact that this is what God has called us to be and to do. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 1.5, Our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. When the Spirit is filling us and empowering us, he's motivating us to live among people, who don't yet know Christ, for their sake, so that they would come to experience what we have experienced in the grace and the love of God. The Spirit's power orients us outward. The Spirit's power is not our own. We don't produce it. God produces it in us. Paul in 2 Corinthians 4-7, we have this treasure in jars of clay. This is ordinary pots Right? Just everyday use kind of where? Why? To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. I don't know about you, friends, but that's good news. Right? It's not the power doesn't come from me. I don't generate it. You don't generate it. God gives it as a gift. As we follow Jesus... As we, as we step out of our comfort zones and trust Him that He's going to show up in our lives so that we can be a blessing to others, even if it's not comfortable for us, even if it feels like it's, we're inadequate for the task. Those are exactly the kinds of dependent people that the Spirit demonstrates its power through. And so examine yourself. In what ways are you seeking the Spirit's power for purely personal gain? How are you living as if you wish the kingdom was all about you? Whenever you recognize that you're doing this, go to God. Right? Confess it. Thank him for the forgiveness we have in Christ. Preach the gospel to yourself. Ask him to empower you to be different To give you his spirit so that you can love and serve others as you long to do as a follower of Jesus. And then look for ways to do that. And so first we see that the kingdom operates with a different kind of power. Second, the kingdom propels us in a divine purpose. Propels us in a divine purpose. In verses 9 through 11... The disciples are standing there. They're looking up in the sky. Jesus has disappeared from their sight. This had to be a dramatic experience. I can't imagine what that would have been like. And, and so they're just standing there, right, looking up. Who knows what's going through their heads? And two angels appear to them. And they ask them, what are you doing? You know, why are you just standing there looking up in the sky? And, and, and that suggests that there's a second problem here, that we have with living out our kingdom calling. Uh, I'll suggest to you that private spirituality, and I'll I'll try to make the point, private spirituality becomes a problem when we disconnect our experience of God, which is so important, right? It's so foundational to personally experience God, but when we stop there, when we disconnect that with our involvement in his kingdom purposes, his mission, uh, we fall into the second trap. And we get a hint that something's not right by this mild rebuke that the angels uh, give them in verse 11. John Calvin comments on this verse. He he explains what he thinks is going on in, in this way. He says, the disciples were rebuked by the angels, not because they looked up into heaven, but according to Calvin, because they coveted to see Christ reading between the lines a little bit here, but I, but I think that that explains maybe what, what the angels are getting at. He goes on to say, because they hoped that he would return again straight away, that they might enjoy the sight of him again. <clears throat> Makes sense to me. The disciples enjoyed a personal, face-to-face relationship with Jesus, something that we've never experienced, to to live with Jesus and walk with Jesus and eat and talk with Jesus, and they were reluctant to see it end. And I think the reason Jesus disappears so dramatically like this is because he wants to put a punctuation mark on the end of the sentence. Uh, He doesn't just vanish like early occasions. Uh, I think he wants the disciples to know that he's done appearing to them at this point. The period of his appearances to prepare them for their mission was over. Now they're to wait for someone else, the Holy Spirit, and to get on with the mission. John Stott explains it this way. He said, There was something fundamentally inconsistent about their gazing up into the sky when they had been commissioned to go to the ends of the earth. It's easy for us, like the apostles to, to be fixated on our personal, our private, spiritual experience with Jesus, which is, again, it's not less than that. That's critically uh, important. But when we focus only on that, instead of on the mission he's given us as a church, we, we're off the rails. We're, we're not living according to our calling. And it takes the power of the Spirit to reorient us from this what's-in-it-for-me perspective to... To participating in the privilege of, of working with God. And friends, that's not to say there's not something in it for us. Of course, there is. He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Uh, he, we're co heirs with Christ, we're His children. He's given us everything. And yet, He doesn't intend it to end with us, but to flow in us and through us to others. The remedy for the problem of a private spirituality is understanding the King's purpose for us. This period between Christ's first coming and his second coming is for the purpose of spreading God's rule through the gospel by the church empowered by the Spirit. That's what you and I are to be about all the time, every day, no matter where we're at. This isn't just the job of professional clergy and missionaries. In fact, pastors and missionaries often have less access to, to non-Christian people than you do. Uh, I worked in the marketplace for 10 years. I, I had a lot of contact with, uh, with people that weren't part of the church, and, it, and it's, it's much more difficult as a pastor. And so the gospel uh, is, is strategically placed in the nooks and crannies of the city where you guys go. Every day, your neighborhoods, your places of work, the the relationship spheres that you have. All of us are to be witnesses to Jesus and his work. Verse 8 explains that the gospel is to spread from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and ultimately to the ends of the earth. And we see that happen. This is actually an outline for the book of Acts. Uh, by, by the end of the book of Acts, it, it has done that. It has moved from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the heart of the Roman Empire, Rome itself, the capital of the empire. It spread uh, to, to India within four centuries. It became the dominant religion of the Roman Empire. Millions of people, followers of Christ, the majority of the empire in just four centuries. Here's the question How did that happen? <clears throat> How did a church without seminaries and church growth seminars, elaborate programming and large facilities, how did a church that was being persecuted periodically conquer the Roman Empire? There's a lot of sociological, cultural, and spiritual factors that could go into answering a question like that, but for risk of oversimplifying things a bit, I think the way it happened was the way it spread out of Jerusalem into that next sphere, Judea and Samaria, You read about that in chapter 8 of Acts. Remember what happens? They're hunkered down in Jerusalem. There's a lot happening, a lot going on in Jerusalem. But they haven't moved on. And so God in his providence brings about persecution. And it it casts out, it, it forces the disciples out of Jerusalem. And they take the gospel with them. But what disciples The apostles are the ones that stay in Jerusalem. It's the everyday, you know, uh, normal believers that just live their lives. It happened as normal everyday Christians lived in such a way that caused the world to take notice. It happened as rank-and-file Christians simply followed Jesus by loving God and loving others, by serving people, by meeting needs in their communities, and then taking opportunities to tell people about their Savior when it was appropriate to do so. It happened because the early Christians were captivated by the gospel and consumed with the priorities of God's kingdom. And that's the way the church has always expanded. Kenneth Scott Latteret, a well-respected church historian of the last century explained that the primary change agents in the spread of the gospel throughout all of history, the primary change agents, he said, have been the nameless believers who earned their livelihood, he says, in some secular manner and spoke their faith to those they met in a natural fashion. It says people like you and me are embedded in the nooks and crannies of the city Amongst the people in our various spheres, just live out the gospel, showing and telling the gospel? Are there a handful of non Christians that you care about? So you have a relationship, you're building friendships with, and, and you're desperately praying that God would grant them faith? Are you praying that God would give you an opportunity to share the gospel with them? Are you stepping through those doors? because you're looking for God to open them. You might need to take an honest look at how you spend your time and reprioritize your lifestyle uh, so that you even have capacity to spend time with people. That's possible, but I suspect that most of this can happen through what you're already doing. Just having this mindset, this ambassador mindset as you go about the things that you go about in your given day. When you drive your kids to school, Pray with them, pray for them, but also pray, that, pray for their classmates that don't know Christ. Pray for your coworkers on the way to work. Eat lunch with them whenever you can and build bridges. And as you build trust, offer to pray for concerns that they share. Uh, relate your faith to your life as it comes up in conversation. Reinforce our calling to be witnesses in your growth groups. Pray for your calling as witnesses when you gather together with brothers and and sisters in Christ. And you might pray for those, those friends in your life that don't know Christ. Pray for them together. Consider ways to serve together outside the church in some way if that makes sense. How do we engage the mission outside of our local area? We're not physically present on the other side of the world. Join a missionary's prayer list make it a regular part of your spiritual practices to be praying for the advance of the gospel around the world. You can designate giving to missions in addition to your regular giving. Participate in the missions conference that's coming up in March. You'll hear more about that in the coming weeks and make a point to come and take part in it. Here's a great irony that we miss when we focus primarily on ourselves. I'm convinced. I've experienced this myself. Our spiritual experience is simply much richer when we follow Jesus where Jesus is working, where where we follow Jesus into the mission he gave the church than when we focus just exclusively on ourselves. The purpose of our lives, friends, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But we glorify him most when we are so delighted in him that we are compelled to encourage other people to enjoy him also with us. And we enjoy him most when we see his power at work in us, changing our own lives, but also using us to work through us to be a blessing to other people as well, pointing them to the Savior. There's a transforming power in our own lives with an outward orientation. And I guarantee you, if you dare... To align your priorities and goals and activities with Christ, God will show up in power in your life. The key to this, as with everything else, is our motivation. Has the gospel so touched your heart that you have a passion for God? John Piper eloquently put it this way. He said in missions, or evangelism, or just living as a witness, we could say, in missions we simply aim to bring the nations into the white-hot enjoyment of God's glory. The goal of missions is the gladness of the peoples and the greatness of God. Passion for God and worship precedes the offer of God in preaching. You can't commend what you don't cherish. You cannot commend what you don't cherish. Where passion for God is weak, zeal for missions will be weak. But when you truly cherish something, you can't help but commend it. It's not a duty. It's not a distraction. Uh, Nobody has to guilt you or manipulate you into doing it. You do it because you love it. The same is true in our relationship with God. And so, friends, what if we're honest with ourselves and we find that we don't have this kind of passion for God. What do we do? Do we just sit in our apathy? Do we just gut it out and check the box and do what we're supposed to do, but don't, not really want it? Is God pleased with that? Well, I think we just we have to be honest and and do business with God. Recognize the core issue if we are not living out of our identity of who we are, living as his witnesses, being his ambassadors, if if we don't have a passion around that, I think the core issue is that we're not captivated with Christ. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, the love of Christ compels me. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, so that those who live no longer live for themselves, but for him who died on their behalf. And then he says, we are ambassadors of God. We beseech you, we urge you, we beg you, be reconciled to God. The love of Christ compelled him to live that way. And so if we're not captivated with Christ, if we're honest with ourselves, recognize that, own up to it, talk to God about it. Say, God, you're not glorious enough in my eyes. Something else in my life is more valuable, more noble, more worthy of my affection and devotion, and it grieves me because I know in my head that that should be the place you occupy in my heart. So what are those things? Identify them. Lay them side by side with Christ and his kingdom and evaluate them, right? What does each offer you? (laughs) Who's more trustworthy, God or your idol? Dismantle it. Disabuse yourself of its appeal. And and, and repent. Confess to God how you're undervaluing his son. You're overvaluing these things. Cry out to God. Change my heart, God. Help me so experience you that like Paul and others, I'm compelled by your love to live for you. That doesn't just happen in a vacuum. It happens as you prayerfully pursue the means of grace God has given And then look for ways to follow Jesus by loving God and loving others. Ways that tangibly serve other people. Friends, when we grasp the earth-shaking implications of the kingdom of God, we become like the apostles who said in Acts 4.20, we cannot help speaking about what we've seen and heard. You can't stop us. We can't help it when we're motivated by a passion for God and the power of the Holy Spirit, we naturally and joyfully go about the work of Christ's kingdom. This task is honorable. I mean, think about it. We are ambassadors of the king of the universe. And we're given the power source to do it. Our effectiveness is not based on our strength, our ability, our eloquence, our wisdom. It's based on the power of God that's given to us as a gift in the presence of the Spirit. Our mission is inevitably successful. We know the end of the story. The gospel will spread to every tribe, tongue, and nation. God will accomplish his purposes. People will stream to his banner. The amazing thing is that God... Invites us to be a part of what he is doing. Do you want to be a part of that? If so, embrace his purpose. Live as a kingdom outpost. Seek his power to do it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that while we were your enemies, you loved us. You so loved the world that you sent your only begotten son. Jesus, we praise you that though you had every privilege in heaven, you emptied yourself because you loved us. Your love was too good not to share. And so you became one of us, took on the form of a servant, and were obedient even to the point of death on a cross. Thank you, Jesus, that you went to that cross for the joy set before you because on the other side of that cross was a family. Thank you that you have made us your sons and daughters. Lord, captivate our hearts with your glory and your goodness and your grace and your mercy. Would we so experience your love that we can't help but love you in return. And Lord, as we love you in return, help us to seek your glory in the good of other people. Help us to find our joy in working with you for your purposes. Use us, Lord, to be a blessing to others, to point others to you that they could share in the joy that we know with you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.